0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at IndivisibleRadio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag Indivisible Radio or leave us a voicemail at IndivisibleRadio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change.
2: From WNYC in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes, and this is Indivisible, Public Radio's live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. And this Saturday marks the 100th day of that presidency, a presidency that has been a dazzling whirl of news, controversy, theater, and political division. But really, that hardly captures the upheaval we've been living through, which we've been trying to talk about here on Indivisible for the past 14 weeks. Now, the 100-day mark is, of course, completely artificial and symbolic, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter, because it does a lot, according to Donald Trump. I am
3: asking the American people to dream big once again. What follows is my 100-day action plan to make America great again. It's a contract between Donald J. Trump and the American voter, and it begins with bringing honesty, accountability and change to Washington, D.C.
2: Well, um, yeah. Um, now, even though he's been trying to downplay the significance of the 100 days, the Trump White House is uh, this week making a frenzied rush to put points on the board before Saturday, including, of course, more executive orders, uh, an attempt to revive health care legislation in the House and earlier today, the outline of big new tax cuts. So let's try one last time to make some sense of what we have just seen, what we have just been living through, N- not just how Donald Trump is doing, but how we're doing, how we're getting through this how we've been changed, how how America's been changed, and maybe even how our culture has been changed. And we have assembled an all-star cast tonight. I want to welcome back two of my guests from early on in this series. Weekly Standard Editor-in-Chief Stephen Hayes joined us in week two, soon after the travel ban was instated when we asked listeners on both sides of the aisle whether or not they felt they were losing their country. And Karen Tumulty from The Washington Post joined us in week four. She's the national political correspondent for The Post. Who spoke about her paper's role in exposing the General Michael Flynn story that led to his resignation, as well as the then-budding challenges of what it was like to cover the Trump administration as a member of the media. And I also want to welcome her Washington Post colleague and first-time Indivisible guest, David Ferenholt, who just won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of Donald Trump's charitable practices, and he joins via Skype. Welcome, everybody. Our all-star cast. Great
1: to be here. Hey, Charlie. Uh,
2: it, it is good to talk with all of you. So let's just start by going around the table. Uh, I want to ask each one of you, highlight low light, specific moments, highlights and lowlights of this first winter days. We'll start with you, Stephen Hayes.
3: Well, I think the the clear highlight is uh, Justice uh, Gorsuch. Uh, Donald Trump said that he was going to nominate a conservative to the Supreme Court. There were many conservatives across the country who wouldn't have otherwise voted for Donald Trump and, and cited their hope that he would pick a conservative to nominate to the Supreme Court as the sole reason that they voted for him. So he did that. He kept that promise. Uh, he made conservatives happy. I think uh, most moderates uh, think that, that Gorsuch, even if they don't agree with him, is, uh, is a respectable guy. He got good grades from the uh, ABA and others. So I think that was a pretty clear highlight. Um, the lowlights, I think, are, are spread around. I mean, we've had, you know, we had his March 4th tweets where he accused President Obama of wiretapping Trump Tower, which we knew at the time uh, he didn't have anything supporting that. It was conjecture. And uh, you had a White House that, that worked to scramble in order to kind of backfill uh, his claim. And they've still not been able to do it.
2: Okay. Karen Tumulty, Highlight Lowlight.
4: Well, I would agree with Steve that the uh, you know the the successful confirmation of a Supreme Court justice uh, as it, which ran as smoothly as it did. I mean, you it, it was something that looked like it was going to be an imaginably difficult fight in this um, in this in, you know incredibly partisan environment, and yet it came off really smoothly. So I think I agree that that is thus far going to be his biggest achievement and the one that has the, you know, biggest lasting, you know, legacy-making impact of what we've seen so far. Um, I think that the low light, you know, beyond his Intemperate rhetoric, which we saw a lot of during the campaign, was is probably the his and the administration's inability to sort of come to grips with and and get beyond the questions that have been raised about uh, you know Russian efforts to to hack into the election, not because many people seriously believe that it changed the result of the election, but the fact that it really raises a lot of scary questions going forward.
2: David Fahrenthold. Uh, by the way, first of all, congratulations on winning the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, well, well-deserved and maybe a glimmer of hope for the future of uh, journalism in the era of Trump. So, David Fahrenthold, your highlight and
5: lowlight. Well, thank you. I, I guess I'll give you the highlight and lowlight for the news media. Okay. I feel like the highlight was, was the... Um, it's been a couple of nights, but most especially the coverage of Michael Flynn. Uh, there were times when even people in the center of power, Mike Pence, the vice president, for instance, was learning about Mike Flynn and things that he had done wrong and the ways he'd misled people from the Washington post and the New York times. There were these nights where we, and they would go back and forth, uh, Really revealing things that there may not people may not have known about otherwise. That really made a difference, and it apparently got uh, the administration to get rid of a guy who turns out to be in you know to have been an undeclared foreign agent at that point. Uh, that's the highlight. The low light for the media to me has been a couple of nights in which uh, TV news especially has uh, fallen all over themselves to praise Trump when he did basically sort of just a normal thing for a president. One was the speech he gave to Congress, which was perfectly fine speech delivered from a teleprompter like every other president in, in modern history. And, uh, you know, there was this coverage of he became president tonight when he read a speech off a teleprompter. And then also the media's coverage of the Syrian airstrikes, um, which, you know, you can argue about whether they made strategic sense, but nobody was asking that question the night that we were just showing again and again and again the photos of the missiles lifting off. Um, there was this huge uh, rush to praise Trump before we even really knew what he'd hit and what the, you know, what the strategy was that those missiles represented. I think those two nights in which we've, as collectively as the news media have pr- rushed to praise Trump for clearing a fairly low bar, I think those have been our, our low lights.
2: I, I described uh, that as a, perhaps an example of battered pundit syndrome, that, <laughs> that, that, that there was just so much desire to say that, okay, so, you know, dad didn't come home drunk and beat us all. He must be the world's best dad. <laughs> you think some of that was going on there, David?
5: I think that's right. I, to me, the interesting thing was you see all the people in the media say, these people who are Trump voters, you know, why don't they get it? Why do, why do they only hear the parts of Trump's rhetoric that they like and disregard all the other parts? You know why are they so selectively hearing this guy just because he's their guy? Why can't they see the whole picture? And then we're just as guilty of that, right There's so many people in the news media who want to believe that Trump is like every other president, that things are back to normal in Washington that we're not in a period of upheaval, that the second he does something. That fits that pattern. They ignore the other 99% of the time when he's doing other stuff and and say, okay, we're back in an era of normalcy. Forget about what happened yesterday and what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, tonight he became president. That was really, I think you're right that the standards are changed so much that people give him credit for way too much.
2: Well, I want to go back to uh, to Stephen and Karen's answer. I I, I certainly agreed. If you had to find one highlight that I would identify, it would be the Supreme Court nominee. But there are so many possible lowlights, and it, it's hard to keep track of all of these. Uh, you know, including the the failure of the administration at any point to get a major legislative. Uh, you know, win, uh, including health care. And then, of course, just the fact that he launches the presidency with a series of flat out demonstrable lies, including something as silly as the size of his of his inauguration crowd. So let's let's go back to this uh, again around around the table. If you had to write a headline, since all of you are journalists, how would you summarize the first 100 days? What, What headline would you give it? Start with you, Stephen Hayes
3: putting me on the spot huh? I, I, you do this I for a living. To, I, I'm not a headline writer you know As, 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 as I'm, I'm a writer so I typically write the articles and other yep. people do the headlines because that's actually the hard part of the job yeah. um, but whatever I would come up with would would try to reflect the fact that he's been he's done a lot of things as president uh that he can do only as president where he hasn't had success as you suggested is um in trying to to push legislation and and working with congress working with his own party in congress trying to make inroads with democrats in congress so i think that the headline of the the first hundred days is the ad hoc presidency
2: Mm. donald trump learns the limits of being president uh, Karen Tumulty, your headline for the well, first 100 days.
4: Well, I think maybe I would write the subhead to Steve's headline, and it's, he's still Donald Trump. <laughs> it is striking the degree to which everyone, including himself, even including Donald Trump himself, would say, oh, once he gets elected, he's going to become a different person, as uh, Trump said during the campaign, you know, I'm going to be so presidential, you're going to get bored with it. Uh, is still exactly the, the candidate we saw on the campaign trail. Uh, he has not tempered his rhetoric. He still has faith, for, first and foremost, in his own instincts, and he pursues those instincts.
5: Okay,
2: David Fahrenthold.
5: I think it would be a quote, uh, nobody knew it could be so complicated.
4: <laughs> uh, That's my
2: favorite quote of the first 100 days, by the way.
5: Uh, the, the, just think of so there's been so many instances when this is applied uh north korea healthcare, uh the iran deal all these cases where trump basically ran on the idea that everyone before him was stupid and these problems that were, had not been solved were only unsolvable only seemed unsolvable because everyone else was dumb and the answer was simple and we've seen so many times when she said you know nobody knew which is his code for i did not know that these things were so complicated and it's led him in some cases to sort of Less disruptive positions to positions that are more in line with past presidencies, especially on foreign policy. Uh, I think that's made the, the overall impact much less. Uh, you know, the overall disruption much less, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but that's been the thing that stuck with me so much is him saying, "You know, I know I ran on the idea that this was simple. Nobody knew it was so complicated."
2: Yeah. And then Frederick Douglass is really picking up a lot of getting a lot more credit than he used to. <laughs> uh, OK, now, this is actually, I, I think, a deceptively uh, difficult question. We're going to start with you, um, Stephen. What surprised you the most? And the reason I say it's deceptively simple, because some of the most surprising things are, as Karen Tumblety point out, the least surprising things that he's Donald Trump and he stayed Donald Trump. But w- what in the first hundred days surprised you the most?
3: Well, I I think I would probably point to the the serious strikes um, for a number of reasons. I mean, on the one hand, you can't quite be surprised by anything that Donald Trump says or does, even if it contradicts things that he's said or done in the past, because this is, as Karen says, this is Donald Trump. It's what he does. So, on the one hand, you can't really have been surprised that he argued against interventions in the Middle East, and then in in his first 100 days, does a limited uh, short-term intervention in the Middle East. Um, But having said that, the, the argument that he made for having done so the, you know the, the references to the children having been killed basically making a a human rights case alongside or maybe even in front of uh, a strategic case for uh, as a justification of what he had done struck me as odd. I mean, you know, we've heard him say before, and we've heard him say since with respect to Libya, that the United States doesn't have a role in these places, uh, even when people are being killed. Uh, With that one, he he said he was really moved by the Mm -hmm. pictures that he'd seen of the children, and that that justified this intervention and this sort of brushback pitch, if that's what it was.
2: Well, you're also, Stephen, one of the most prominent, shall we say, um, Trump-skeptical conservatives, do you, will you own that that, that title? Well, I agree with skept- Trump skeptical. So, I don't so, agree with prominent. Has he been has has he surprised you in any way in in being more or less conservative than you thought he would be?
3: Uh, I think in some respects, uh, you know, I, I was I would say skeptical or not convinced that he was going to actually nominate a conservative to be a Supreme Court justice, Mm -hmm. given the fact that, you know, he was a a relatively new conservative or a conservative of convenience when he ran for president, Um, and he followed through on that. So I don't know that I was surprised that might be too strong, but uh, certainly it it wasn't something that I'd counted on.
2: Okay. Karen Tumulty, what surprised you the most?
4: Uh, organizational thing. I'm accustomed to seeing in Republican administrations one thing they are good at is transitions. (laughs) Um, And it was sort of shocking the degree to which uh, Trump began his presidency with, you know, so few people in place with um, so little organizational structure. And I think that is one of the reasons he made one of his biggest early stumbles, which was on the you know whether they're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. I think that perhaps if he had had people in place uh, on the administration end of Pennsylvania Avenue, he wouldn't have had to just completely outsource this thing to Paul Ryan and <laughs> end up being sort of um, you know humiliated as a result.
2: David Fahrenheitholt, what surprised you the most?
5: Uh, I guess I've been surprised by the the, the the fact that Trump himself seems to be kind of fading as a, as as a central player, as sort of a person huh. who makes decisions and makes things happen. I, I, what we've seen is there is he is sort of as time' has gone on, there's been so many instances where the actual momentum on a particular issue is driven by other people. He still attracts a lot of attention. But you know, on Syria policy, on uh, you know questions of the military, there's people who are around him who seem to be making the biggest decisions, speaking the loudest and most consistently, and I, and even on Capitol Hill, you know, it's been Mark Meadows of the Freedom Caucus and to some degree Paul Ryan who've really been in the driver's seat. I, I've been surprised at sort of the ability, the way he's kind of Trump has lost his ability to control the events around him. Even as he sort of keeps an ability to control with the, you know, what the media is talking. You about.
2: Know, you know. th- that's what dovetailed What I had written down here uh, between you and uh, and, and Karen's uh, point. I, I guess I was surprised by the level of chaos of of the transition. The level of chaos in the White House. On the other hand, uh, you, you do have this incredible inconsistency between you know some really very highly qualified members of the cabinet and of course some of the some of the flakier. It's it, it runs the entire gamut. Okay, Steve. We only have Steve. We only have you for a couple couple of minutes uh you want to go out on a limb and give the president a letter grade i will ask karen and david later stephen hayes letter grade for the first 100 days
3: i guess i'd say a, a, a c plus on the one hand he doesn't have much in the way of accomplishments he's done the kind of things that he could could accomplish as president he hasn't had legislative success um you know, and, and while he's he's said things that are demonstrably untrue, as you pointed out earlier, um, and, and does it regularly, we would have expected that. Um, I think the fact that he hasn't initiated a major crisis maybe has me grading on a curve because I was so skeptical of him coming in. I would say a C or a C plus, perhaps.
2: Yeah. Do you think that the next hundred days will be better than the first one hundred days?
3: I don't. I don't, you don't. I think he's no. I don't. Oh. I, look, he he's done what he can do. He's done many of the things that he said he was going to do, and that he alone can do as president. Remember, he said I alone can fix it. Well, he's done those things. Now's the tough stuff. I mean, now's where he's got to work congress and as we've seen with uh, the discussions about tax reform just over the past several days um, as we've seen with him surprising people with policy announcements uh, changing his views on certain aspects of health care reform uh... Th- he really is an ad hoc president and it leaves the white house staff scrambling in his wake trying to come up with justifications for things that he said or policies to match his rhetoric and it leaves capitol hill in utter chaos as they try to craft some legislative agenda out of Donald Trump's tweets and, and latest conversations. I think that's like what we're likely to see now in
2: well, the next 100 days. Thank you. We have to take a quick break and say goodbye to Stephen Hayes. Thanks so much for joining me again, Stephen. He's the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard. And he'll be at the Weekly Standard Summit 2017 in Colorado Springs in June. You can find out more information about that at indivisibleradio.com. Again, thanks so much for joining us. This is Charlie Sykes and Indivisible. More with Karen Tumulty and David farrell from The Washington Post after the break.
4: Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible.
2: This is Indivisible. Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. I'm talking with David Faranholt and Karen Tumulty from the Washington Post. We also want to hear your reflections on Donald Trump's first 100 days in office. We want you to give Donald Trump a letter grade. Assign him a grade. Tell us why. Give us a call at 844 745 talk thats 844 844- 745-8255. You can also tweet us with a hashtag IndivisibleRadio. Um, there's so many things to talk about here. David, I want to go back to uh, something that you wrote uh, um, in, in the last week. And I guess I want to, this question, what did Americans learn about Donald Trump? How did his handlings of, for example, his charities foreshadow his approach to the presidency? Um, you actually had a piece uh, last week where you you actually talked about what you had learned about the president's personality. And, of course, this was the story that that won you the Pulitzer Prize. So let's just talk about that um, and just remind people what it was that you discovered last year about Donald Trump, the philanthropist.
5: Well, a couple of things. One was that he'd spent years and years saying that he was going to give huge amounts of money to charity, make these big public promises, I'm going to give away the proceeds of Trump University or the proceeds from the, the celebrity apprentice or whatever. And I looked, to, trying to find any evidence that he'd actually done that, that he actually had given away the money he said he was giving away. Generally, I found not much evidence of that. I also found that he had this charity, the Donald J. Trump Foundation, that was filled with other people's money, and that he was using it in ways that looked like they broke the law. He was using it to pay off his businesses' legal settlements and to buy giant portraits of himself.
2: So h- how does that then relate to the kind of president that he's been in the last hundred days?
5: Well, there were a couple of things I noticed. One was, if you look at the, the Trump Foundation, this thing that was other people's money, but he gave away its donations. If you, you could look at its donations, and you know, you see these are the day-to-day decisions Trump is making about what he's going to do with this pot of money he has. And there's, there was no theme to it. There was no one cause, no university or cancer charities or hospital or anything. It was spread all over the place, and the common denominator was he was giving when to, to help the businesses he did business with and also to help his friends. His friends are being honored by one charity or another. He'd give a few thousand dollars to sort of buy a table or something. So the interesting thing for that was, if you look at his presidency so far, there's a similar theme in that there's no theme. There's no one overriding goal. There's no ability to to pick a strategy and a goal and stick with it. Instead, he's sort of pulled over there, here and there, mostly due to relationships. He's pulled mm-hmm. in... in personal negotiations in things like meeting with the Chinese premier and he likes that guy. And so he's pulled in a certain direction. There's no long-term goal that he sticks to it's Short-term relationship based goals. Yeah. That's one thing you really see come through
2: personal relationship, short-term wins over long-term policy goals.
5: The other thing was uh, that he relies always, he always did in his charitable giving on the assumption that he, he knew people assume that if a guy stands up in public and says, I'm going to do this, they just assume that he's going to do it because that's how most people are. They're not going to come back and check, especially when he was just a rich billionaire. They're not going to come back and check and see if he actually followed through. So how many times have we seen him as president say, next week I'm going to produce a lot of evidence about Russian hacking. Or next week I'm going to produce you know something that will show all these people voted illegally. Or in 90 days I'll have a cyber plan. And the, often those things never happen. They happen way late. He knew. I think he's counting on the idea that people will forget. They'll, they'll give him credit for the promise and then forget to check and see if he followed
2: and through. That's wor- and that's working for him, though. You, 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 so you, you pointed out he seems to suffer little damage to his reputation for doing that. Oh, I
4: would disagree okay,
2: on, on that. Go ahead,
1: he's, he's also
4: got the lowest approval ratings of, of any president at this point in his term that, that we have ever seen.
2: And yet his base stays incredibly loyal to him, don't they, Karen?
4: Yeah, but the, the thing is that he is not... He is not expanding that base, and um, that points to a a real re-election challenge. It also points, uh, perhaps more importantly and certainly more immediately, to the challenge of getting anything through. He has learned that he cannot get a health care bill through Congress on just The Republican votes that are up there, he is now taking on tax reform, the first comprehensive overhaul of the U.S. tax code in over 30 years. That is requires an extraordinary amount of of trust building and confidence, and uh, you know, sort of, it cannot be done as a partisan exercise, and it especially cannot be done as uh, by you know, one segment of a party.
2: I actually think this is the most fascinating story because, of course, it goes to the question of what can Donald Trump get away with? What is his base willing to live with? Okay, so David, your point is that, he, you know, he basically got elected president, and so far he just promises major actions, he prom- makes these elaborate promises and people believe that he's going to follow through because they expect he's going to follow, and then he doesn't, and it so far hasn't caught up with him. Well, you don't think it's caught up with him, but, I mean, is is the environment changing? Is is this, in fact, now going to be a reality check on him that he has not experienced so far?
5: I think it's gradually happening among the public, but for him, the real audience here now is Congress, right, And if who are watching him and are paying attention, and if they realize that he's not going to follow through with his promises and that when he threatens them that there's that he won't follow through, or when he stakes out a position that he'll back off of it. All those things which Congress notices, even if the public does not, are really hurting his leverage to get them to do what he wants. That's the thing he needs to worry about for the next couple of years.
2: You know, Karen, I want to go back to this this point because again, I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by it, and I know that you tweeted out uh, you know a couple of uh, polls this week showing how incredibly divided this country is. Here, you, know, you have these do you know based on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you either believe that the Russians uh, you know hacked the election, or you believe that Barack Obama was wiretapping Trump Trump Tower. I guess the question is, has Trump changed this country? Has, has he changed our politics or our culture in some fundamental way? I, I was struck by this poll that I saw earlier this week showing Republican voters in some key states saying, yeah, we believe he makes stuff up, he lies, but, but we don't care. We're okay with that. So, Karen Tumulty, is, is it possible that, that he, in fact, has adjusted the norms of American politics?
4: Well, I think he saw what was happening in American politics uh, it, going all the way back to jumping on the whole birtherism thing that that was out there that was happening but he he recognized it, he jumped on it, he got ahead of it, he led it, he accelerated it and um I think that 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 is the case with a lot of the the things about our politics that have become more corrosive. It's not that he invented it, uh, that you look every single president probably going, you know, at least as far back as Bill Clinton. Each president was considered a more polarizing figure than the last. But there is now, this is a, a president who both, who understood the trend and figured out a way to sort of profit from it.
5: David? I think that's I think Karen is exactly right. I, I think that the, the polarization of, of particularly the Republican electorate began it, you know, certainly during Obama, the strategy from Mitch McConnell and others that the way to oppose Obama was to was to sort of hold the line, give him nothing, call healthcare socialism. In that sort of pushes people uh push people to a certain distance. Trump has put has taken advantage of that and pushed them further. The thing I think it's hard to judge though now because still because Trump has done so little that actually affects people's lives, he's gotten so few sort of tangible policy changes through, it's still kind of theater to people. There's so much of this that's just theater. He's, he's, he's hurting my enemies or he's, he's mocking or trolling my enemies, so I like that. Even if he lies, he's angering the right people. But if he ever starts to make changes, like if he really gets his health care repeal passed that affects people's lives, that may have an impact where there it, it will it, there'll be more than just theater to it.
2: Uh let's let's go to the uh the, the phones for for a few minutes here. We're asking uh, you to give Donald Trump a letter grade in the first one hundred days. Assign him a grade, tell us why, give us a call at eight four four seven four five talk. I'm not accepting incomplete because that's just too weenie. So let's let's just go to the phones. Uh John from Nashville, you are on Indivisible. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Hey,
0: good evening.
2: Well, what grade do so, you give him? Uh
0: personally i'd give uh the president a d plus i can't say that i voted for him but just looking at from an objective perspective uh anything that he has said that he was looking to establish he has done exclusively through executive orders which of course is you know very unilateral and that's has required other branches of government whether it's the legislative or anything with judicial oversight has been an abject uh failure and for someone that has marketed themselves as a deal maker, he's made no deals, so I can't really see anything you can hang your hat on. And I mean they had to change the rules to uh, appoint his Supreme Court nominee. So I can't really give the man anything better than a passing grade and I'm a middle school teacher. Okay,
2: so 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 <laughs> D plus I want to go to that that point, really fascinating point about Donald Trump as a deal maker. He you know he's the author of The Art of the Deal. He always talks about that Karen, what have we actually found out about Donald Trump as the master dealmaker?
4: Uh, well, he hasn't made any big deals yet, <laughs> and and there, it's also interesting to see him try to, you know, put these skills at work in in the foreign policy context. Uh, for instance, threatening China that unless they help out on North Korea, they you know, he's he's going to. They won't get a good trade deal out of him. Uh, that most people who know these things far better than I will tell you that that um, you know Chinese policy towards North Korea is is driven by an entirely separate set of concerns than their policies on trade. Mm-hmm. You know, one is national security, the other is is economic. And that this is these you can't sort of bargain one thing away in one realm for the other. That just isn't the way these these things work. And yet, Donald Trump approaches everything as though there's there's just you know one thing that you can give and and get another.
2: David, you've obviously you know studied how he does his business practices. What, What what is your take on Donald Trump as? the great negotiator, because I mean, my, my take was watching him navigate Congress. I was thinking, okay, w- when, when are we actually going to see the, the real deal cutter? I mean, he's no Lyndon Johnson.
5: Well, yeah, I think there's two problems here. One is that when he was in the, in the realm of business or real estate, he understood the terms of his deals. He understood the details. I mean, if you want to talk about price per square foot or you know, all these other terms, he knew what the levers were, so it was easy for, or easier for him to cut a deal. In, on healthcare, for instance, one of our colleagues, Bob Costa, Trump invited him in mm-hmm. uh, to the Oval Office to hear him arm-twisting Representative Joe Barton from Texas during the run-up to the, the time they almost got to a vote and then pulled it back. So here was Trump, the dealmaker, leaning on this, this wavering member of Congress from Texas. And what Costa found was that Trump didn't actually know anything about the bill. So it wasn't like, okay, you give me this on essential health benefits and I'll give you that on Medicaid. He was just saying – This is going to be great. You're going to love it. Like it was all generalities. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard to make a deal when you don't know anything about this, you know, the the terms of the deal you're offering. Uh, The other thing is that Trump wrote in the art of the deal that you can't show people you're desperate to make a deal. That's a point of it's a position of weakness. And yet he's approached healthcare uniformly from the position of I need a deal to make myself look good. And it's handed all the power in these negotiations to the people who say no which has been the Freedom Caucus. The Freedom Caucus has Mm -hmm. moved the terms of this way away from what Trump said he wanted in the campaign all the way to their terms because Trump's desperate for a deal in broadcasting that and they're taking advantage of it. So
2: Karen Tumulty, were you surprised that he caved on the wall in the continuing resolution?
4: Um, I think that Uh, As it happens, I spent last week uh, in Texas working on a story on Congressman Will Hurd, Mm -hmm. who is a Republican, has this absolutely vast district in Texas. It's bigger than 29 states. It also has a third of the U.S. border with Mexico is in this one congressional district. And so everywhere I went, I talked to people and asked them what they thought of this idea for a wall. Now, these are people who live with the border. Uh, some of whom most of the people I talked to, trump supporters, some of whom would go so far as to say all eleven million undocumented immigrants should be deported. Not a single person I talked to thought that a wall would be a good or an effective way of solving or even ameliorating the problems on the border. So I think that um, you know it's it's reality coming around and especially for people who live there and know what you know what kinds of means might actually help a wall is not one of them i was really struck by how hard you know i was trying very hard to find anybody who thought this would help
2: let's go back to the report card let's go to cincinnati ohio carl you are an indivisible what grade would you give donald trump in his first 100 days
0: well, as a capitalist, I'd give him an A, because he's profited from both his domestic and foreign policy. Okay. But as behavior, I'd give him a D-. minus. An example would be the events leading up to the um, big, um, chemical bombing in Syria. A week before that, the United States had bombed Mosul, and over 200 innocent civilians were killed, including women and children. Attention was being drawn to that. I think he diverted attention. With these bombing, with the Tomahawk missiles in Syria, and he owns stock in Raytheon.
2: All right, well, I don't want to get Those into. Are- I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds there because we can't do an instant fact check. Uh, you know, David, you have written so extensively about the charitable giving. There are a lot of stories recently, and I know that you were. We're um, working on this today. This whole question of the conflicts of interest, the business interests of the tr- of Trump and of his children—how big an issue? How much of a of, of a problem is that
5: going to be going forward? I think it's going to continue to be a problem for him. Um, so what we've seen from him is that he usually spends his weekends and sometimes parts of his weeks at Trump-owned properties. You know, golf, Mar-a-Lago, golf courses, things like that which um, which certainly his right he has the right to do that uh but he's you know he's uh he's he has chosen also to continue in some in some relationships that are not that well known not that well explored so far um s- sort of selling properties off to shell companies continuing to do business with foreign governments all these things that could could that could sh- shape his decision making that he knows and we don't and i think we're we're gaining more and more knowledge of that and that's going to catch up to him more and more as it goes on Uh, But certainly we've seen him make no effort at all. In fact, make less effort than he promised to try to take him take those conflicts of interest off his plate to make it so that he's not getting money from all these different sources that we're trying to understand.
2: And and you're working on what uh, Ivanka is doing with the foundation.
5: Yeah, this was a crazy story today. Um, It seems like it was a little overblown. There was a report originally from this website Axios saying Mm -hmm. that uh, Ivanka Trump was going to start something that sounded like an investment fund or a nonprofit that was going to take in money from companies and countries and give it out to women entrepreneurs around the country. I don't know the origins of that story because it was, it was sourced to mm-hmm. sort of in, officials familiar. But the actual upshot seems to be that the World Bank is going to do something that helps women entrepreneurs. And Ivanka is just going to stand off to the side and support it. She's not going to raise money or have control over where the money goes.
2: All right. Let's let's uh, let's go back to uh, Brian from Nashville. Brian, you are an indivisible. What is your uh, what's your grade on the first 100 days? Uh, I, I'm going to give
3: him an A-plus, because uh, he's done everything that I wanted him to do, which is nothing. Uh, he has <laughs> failed to accomplish any of his main goals. He hasn't passed healthcare. He's not making me pay for a wall that Mexico's going to pay for eventually somehow. Um, I, I think he's just bumbling through sort of 140 characters at a time. and. Uh, that's that's all I could ask for from Donald J. Trump.
2: All right, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Brian opened up a can of snark there for us, but that that is okay. Our phone number, uh, our phone number once again is eight four four seven four five talk. That is eight four four seven four five eighty two fifty five. And we're and we're looking for we're looking for a letter grade. Look, we have to take another quick break. You are listening to Indivisible. Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is our our final show, so we're trying to wrap it up, trying to get our heads around what we have seen and what we are living through. I'm Charlie Sykes. I'm here with David Farenthold and Karen Tumulty from The Washington Post. We're asking you to assign Donald Trump the grade. We'll hear more after the break. Stay with us.
4: Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible.
1: Is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change.
2: This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. I'm talking with David Fahrenholt and Karen Tumulty from the Washington Post. We're asking you to assign Donald Trump a letter grade for his first 100 days. Number is 844 745. Talk that is 844 745 8255. Karen Tumulty, in the first segment, I asked uh, everybody what were the highlights and the lowlights of the Trump presidency, and uh, you and Stephen, and by the way, I agreed with this, The 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 highlight would have been getting a Supreme Court nominee appointed and and approved. But we're getting some pushback. We're getting people on on Twitter saying, look, this was only a win because the filibuster uh, was changed. Will that always scar his appointment? I know a lot of Democrats think there's always going to be an asterisk behind Justice Gorsuch's name. Do you think there will be?
4: Um, No, I don't. And um, I also, as we'll point out, as, as has often been pointed out, this is the you know a road that, that Harry Reid started them down uh, when when he pulled the nuclear option for other appointments. So, um, and I think, quite frankly, that it's only a matter of time before the filibuster gets taken off. You know, as a, a weapon against legislation, it's it is something that. I think has has in many ways outlived it, whatever usefulness it had.
2: David, my my sense is that that we were bitterly divided in 2016, and even though the name of the show is Indivisible, I, I just have the gut sense that we are more bitterly divided in our politics today than we were 100 days ago. What is your take?
5: I think that's. I think we are equally divided. I, I think one thing that I have trouble um, sort of parsing the effect of was that. You know, the Dem is the Democratic Party. You know, a they were represented by Hillary Clinton, sort of a historically unpopular uh, presidential nominee. And then since then, there's been kind of a vacuum. Uh, you know, there there's a lot of people who hate Donald Trump, but there's not a lot of people who are sort of putting together an agenda for the Democratic Party that they can all be for. And so it, it does seem very partisan and very divided. In part because one side really isn't playing for the middle ground. The Democrats really seem to be kind of lost right now. Um, so I'm going to be interested to see what they come up with as an agenda to go forward and whether they can get anybody, they can get back toward the center and they can get people who now are against them or were against Clinton to come on their side.
2: Who, who is right now the leader of the Democratic Party, Karen Tumulty?
4: Uh, I do not know of any Democrat, who, a Democratic official who can who can answer that question. Um, th- this is the kind of thing, though, that that. A party spends its wilderness years sorting out. Certainly, anybody who was around in the 1980s, uh, you know, when they had back-to-back landslide mm-hmm. losses, uh, there's there's a way out of the wilderness, and somebody's going to find it, and we, we, or yeah. the party will cease to exist. They they have been absolutely devastated on on the state level.
2: And that means that they have a very, very limited bench. Let's go back to the phones for the report card. Let's go to uh, Chicago, Illinois. Frank, you are an indivisible. Good evening. Thanks for calling in. What grade would you give Donald sure. Trump?
3: Well, I would give him an A-plus for being Trump. <laughs> uh, he's Trump all the way. He 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 starts out as a just an average citizen, you know, a relatively successful businessman. And he comes into office... Uh, and he's learning on the job. He's doing what he said he would do.
2: Average citizen,
3: I, I think. I mean, no more well informed than the rest of us, certainly.
2: But so, what do you give him the A plus for? Just asking. For just
3: for being himself, because he goes to Washington, and and it's a refreshing uh, a moment for us. It might not last, but you know that's what it is. Right,
2: Frank, so I, they,
3: mean, yeah, I, I think. I think you could do as good a job as he's doing
2: thanks for the call frank um david Fernell, i hear that word refreshing or that donald trump you know is you know kicking the establishment in the private parts or that that a lot of that support is is just that he's new he's fresh i'm not going to hold him accountable for any specific policy i just kind of like i like the cut of his jib
5: <laughs> well i certainly could see that and And he did identify a number of of things that were a big deal in this country that the political elite had not dealt with, Uh, concerns about trade, concerns about the opioid epidemic. And the question for me is whether he can take those things that were sort of outside both parties' mainstream rhetoric and, you know, he's brought those issues to the forefront. Now can he solve them? If he did, he could do a real service to the country. If he can figure out a way to tackle the opioid problem or to, you know, rebuild American manufacturing jobs, I think people would really be grateful uh, and he has a chance to do that. I just, I don't see him actually putting together a strategy to do more than just talk about those subjects.
2: Yeah, Karen Tumulty, do you think that, that there is a morphing Donald Trump? Have we have we seen in this first 100 days that, uh, that, you know, with some of the, I don't know, divisions within the White House that he's moving toward a more centrist position, that he might actually begin to address those problems in a substantive way?
4: You know, I have now ceased to... Uh to even try to define any pattern in, <laughs> it, or direction in Donald Trump's movements, because, you know, as, as David had mentioned, uh, you know, the night he gave his speech to Congress, uh, you know, the TV commentators were, this is the night he becomes presidential. And then three days later, he was uh, making outrageous ac- accusations on Twitter that the, you know, that President Obama had wiretapped him. So, um,
2: we had to ban the word know, pivot. I,
4: Right. Yeah, I know. It's it's more like pirouette.
2: <laughs> exactly. Let's go to uh New Jersey. Let's go to uh Mike from Plainfield, New Jersey. Uh thanks for calling it indivisible. Your your, hey, your, your report you so your report card.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Uh I would give uh Donald Trump an F or an F minus. Uh you know, they say that uh I guess one of the, the indicators of a, a real leader is recognizing his or her shortcomings and you know, putting people in place that will fill the gaps. You know, if they they can't do something well, you put very able-bodied, very able-minded people in, and, uh, you know, I've seen nothing but, I mean, look at the people that he has around him, you know, Steve Bannon and, you know, Jeff Sessions and Rex Tillerson, you know, this is just, it just seems like an orgy of patronage and self-interest, and And, uh, I don't really see any intention of doing anything for the public good, Uh, you know. Like George W. Bush, you know, either he or the party recognized uh, his shortcomings. And, you know, however you think of Karl Rove or Dick Cheney, you knew that they were very capable individuals, regardless of their intention. Let me ask you this.
2: Let me ask you this, Mike. What if, in fact, Donald Trump puts people back to work? What if, in fact, we have... 4% 4% economic growth and some of those rust belt states begin seeing some kind of of a renaissance or resurgence would that change your attitude or your opinion about the Trump presidency
0: well i mean that would be great for people to get jobs i'll never deny that but you know but at what cost you know do you continually fracture the 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 public is this the united country uh you know what do you do in order to, to to you know do the do the ends truly justify the means you know i am really struggling i mean i'll be honest with you I, I i grew up in new york so i was very well acquainted with donald trump well before the the rest of the country was right but uh i just you know, I, and I would love for him to succeed. I'm never about him, because if he fails, you know, America mm-hmm. fails. But I don't see, I don't really see too much positivity about I, 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 But, I,
2: Mike, I actually think that you asked one of the most interesting questions. So, you know, but at, at what cost? You know, Mike uh, used a word that we haven't talked about enough, I, I think, which is, you know, character. And I want to ask you this, uh, uh, Karen Tumulty. You know, we, we we sometimes get too focused because we're all political geeks on 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 the political consequences of, of of a president or or of an election. I wonder what effect Donald Trump is having on the culture, the character of the country. I mean, the president is also the role model in chief. And I'm old enough to remember that when conservatives, and I was one of them, back in the '90s, kept talking about how you know how important character it was, The character mattered. And you really get the, the, the flip that, uh, in fact, a lot of people are saying, oh, character doesn't matter anymore. And I kind of wonder what it must be like raising children in an age of Trump. You're looking at him saying, well, don't behave like him. But, you know, here's the guy. He's, uh, he's a billionaire. He's married to a supermodel. And he's just been elected to the most powerful job in the world. Why wouldn't I lie? Why wouldn't I treat women in this particular way? Why wouldn't I, you know, uh, treat people this way? What do you think, Karen?
4: Um, I, you know, I don't think that anybody is going to hold Donald Trump up as a, a role model in his, you know, personal life. But in the end, people, as Bill Clinton showed, you, you know, people care mostly about how your actions affect their lives. Mm-hmm. And um, again, if if people feel like the country. Is standing stronger if people feel like the economy is back on the right track. Um, I do think that that character takes a takes a backseat to that.
5: David, do you agree with that? I think that Karen's right in terms of the effect character has on people's political fortunes. I do think there is something, though one of the ideas that you grew up with in america is the idea that americans do things right people aren't looking we do the right thing morally but also we you know we get the job done we don't we don't skimp on things we you know you you know the part of being an american is sort of an attention to quality and a pride in doing things the right way and if you see the the white house the president of the united states continually doing things sort of halfway weaseling out you know tr- you know not really doing what he said he did uh, there's something about the American character that we're proud of, that I think that kind of goes against.
2: Uh, let's go back to uh, let's go to the Midwest. Let's go to uh, Calvin from uh, is it uh, Awatana, Minnesota? Uh, yes, yes, uh, Owatana, Minnesota?
3: Yes, yes, Owatana, Minnesota.
2: Owatana, Minnesota. So, Calvin, what grade would you give him?
3: You know, I would uh, start out by giving him a D minus. You know, that would be my grade for you know given the reality TV star uh, as, <laughs> as the commander in chief of the greatest military. Uh, known to humanity. So I'd say that would be a D-minus. You know, it's kind of funny, you know, calling political opposition clowns and, and uh, you know, saying that, you know, Cruz Cruz's father killed JFK. You know, F- you know, Fiorina, look at her face. You know, I- I'd say that's it has, it's kind of funny, so a D-minus. But now it's getting serious, um, not a joke anymore. Um, put, it, For example, the head of Department of Energy, a person like Governor Cruz that says he wants to get rid of the Department of Energy. Governor Perry. Now the Twitter battles are with Mexico and Canada. Um, And now nuclear bombs are in the discussion. So I I just think the joke is over. I would say now it would be an F. Uh, All
2: right. Thanks for the call. Yeah, when when nuclear bombs get in the equation, it ceases to be funny. Sebastian from Nashville, you're on Indivisible. What grade would you give President Trump?
0: Hi. uh, Thank you for taking my call. I would give to President Trump an A+.
2: Okay. Why?
0: Because uh, he is a human being. Uh, He's not uh, a person a politician what have anti words he applied exactly what he said uh, he he is strong and uh he proved he's a good leader
2: all right thanks for the call uh, sebastian all right so i'm going to uh, ask uh, ask our, uh, our, our our guest you're uh, you're not, not going to get away without uh, having to uh, issue a report card david Fahrenthold oh. and uh, karen tumulty so karen oh
4: i was you weren't going to do this. You know, I,
2: <laughs> I, 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 I got to nail you on, on this one. So let, let, let her... But I, I'm going back. I I have actually written down three different grades and crossed them out. So just so you know, I'm not finding this easy. So, Karen, you know, what grade would you I give me?
4: J- I just... I mean, I don't know that I feel comfortable. And, and not uh, in, because, you know, I don't want to express my, you know, mm-hmm. my best analysis of this. It's just that I don't know where this presidency is going. And, uh, I, you know, certainly it has not gotten off to a, a good start, but it, in the end, you know, often presidents are graded pass-fail, and his presidency is likely to be... Uh, Seen in history through the the lens of events and circumstances that we can't even imagine now. So no. how's that
1: for a wimp? Uh, you know
2: what? Answer? No, it's not. It's not a wimp. It, it, it's actually a pretty good answer, um, David. Do you want to
5: give a grade? Well, I'll, I'll give I'm a grade. Grading, grading Trump on his own objectives, right? Yeah. These are not right. my opinions of what he should have done. Of the, you know, looking at what he set out to do, I give him a C+. Uh, there's some places like Scott Pruitt at the EPA where, you know, you. I may not agree with Scott Pruitt, and a lot of people don't because he's denying climate change, which is not deniable. Um, but Pruitt has actually done a lot of the things that Trump said he would do. He's rolling back environmental regulations. He's meeting with coal miners. There's pockets of that in this administration where – I think of the Congressional Review Act, all the legislation that the Congress has undone. Gorsuch. There's been pieces of the of what Trump said he wanted to do that he's gotten done. But so much of what he said he wanted to do, he has either backed off himself or – Sort of tripped over himself before he could do it. So on his terms, I'd say a C plus.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm debating between a C minus and a D plus. Uh, I obviously agreed with what he did with the Supreme Court, but uh, the the organization, the care, the uh, the the character, and the chaos, I think, has been uh, been disturbing. So I'm I'm going back and forth on that. Uh, let's go back to uh, the phones. Uh, Dave from Akron, Ohio. Uh, thanks for calling. it Indivisible. Your grade?
3: Yes, um, the grade's an A plus. But the whole premise in itself is accepting what is important. You have to have a president who learns in office. They all grow in office. That's what's supposed to do. We had a President Obama who did not grow in office. He stuck to his same principles from day one and carried them out and never backed off his principles. Now, maybe he said it nicer, but it doesn't change his ideology. He pushed that. You have a man who's learning in office, who's adapting, who's working like a businessman does to solve problems and yeah, you can mess up, or you can appear to mess up. You can appear to be not sensitive, or you maybe you're actually doing your job.
2: Dave, thanks for the call. Let's get uh, Katie from Alexandria, Virginia. What grade would you give President Trump?
1: Hi there. Good evening. First, okay. let me thank you um, for taking my call, and also thank David for his excellent reporting um, on the uh, and the Pulitzer Prize. I think that when we're grading a president, we have to not just give one simple grade or single grade because there are so many aspects of the presidency that are assigned to that individual. And so on the subject of unity, unifying the country following a very divisive election, um, I would give Trump an F. He did nothing, has sought not to unify the country in any way, shape, or form. Um, With regard to staffing, obviously, that is a critical component of the job. And with the exception, perhaps, of McMaster and Mattis and maybe a couple of others, and following up on David's point, educating himself enough Mm -hmm. to make good choices, Um, again, I would give him an F, maybe a D minus.
2: All right, Katie, thanks. I appreciate it. Look, we have to leave it there. Uh, If we can continue. Karen Tumulty and David Farenthold are colleagues at The Washington Post. Karen is the national political correspondent, and David just won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the Donald Trump Foundation. Thanks so much uh, to both of you. I appreciate it.
4: My pleasure.
2: Tomorrow night, you'll hear reflections on the past 100 days from Minnesota Public Radio's Carrie Miller, and that's pretty much it for Indivisible, and I want to say thank you to everybody who has made this possible. Look, I'd like to just say a couple of things. You know, 14 weeks ago, I opened the first show by saying that I was a stranger in a strange land. I'm a former conservative host on public radio, and, you know, I now find myself excommunicated from the conservative movement more or less a man without a country, but I was really intrigued by this idea of a national conversation at a time when we frankly have not been talking with one another very much. We've separated ourselves into alternative reality politics or treated into our partisan corners. Uh, So this was a chance to do something that doesn't happen very much, and I, I think we've done this and I appreciate it. While we've disagreed, I think most of that disagreement was civil, which was the point we did have a conversation that we really needed. Um, and I want to say how grateful I am to all of the folks here at WNYC for, for, you know, giving me a chance for letting this happen. And I want to thank the people who've been screening your calls for 14 weeks. They're Sam Anderson, Justine Daum, Bijan Roganchi. I got that right, Ursula Summer, and Asher Stockler. Also, sincere thanks to our engineers, Debbie Daughtry and Jason Isaac, our digital and social producer, Bianca Carnero, our producer, Jessica Miller and executive producer, Megan Ryan. I'm Charlie Sykes, and you can keep up with me on Twitter. My handle is at SykesCharlie. Good night. It's been a great run.
4: Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation.
2: If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.